Homegrown Solutions, Sustainability in Crisis is a deep dive into highlighting community members and initiatives as they adapt to a global pandemic. Here are their stories. Austin African, I recently interviewed poet and spoken word artist Manon Voice. In our interview, we discussed the work that she does in her organization called the Kendrick Collective. The Kendrick Collective focuses on racial equity, leadership for people of color, and more. We also got to talk about what her work looks like due to COVID-19. Thanks and enjoy. My name is Manon Voice, and I am a poet, spoken word artist, writer, social justice advocate, practicing contemplative and hip hop MC. I'm a native of Indianapolis, Indiana, so been here all of my life. And I am a full-time creative entrepreneur. Um, Half of my time is split with um, writing uh, poetry and doing art and performative work. And I'm also the co-founder of an organization by the name of Kindred Collective. And the organization, we do racial equity workshops. We do healing dialogues for community and leadership development for people of color. Uh, I sit on the board of the Fair Housing for Central Indiana. I sit on the board uh, for Indy Maven. Um, digital publication, which amplifies the voices of uh, women in Indiana. So there's a litany of things that I do, but there, but uh, that is, I think, uh, the abbreviated version. So how long have you been into poetry or how long have you been um, doing spoken word or what kind of started uh, your journey with that? Sure. Yeah. So I found poetry actually as a child. I was in elementary school and I remember vividly that there was the bookmobile that would come around and the bookmobile was like the little truck. Um, So I went to an IPS school. I went to IPS school 83 and you could get on the bookmobile and and you could pick out free books. And so it would come around um, every so often. And so it was different than like the library where you had to check books out and then like bring them back at like a deadline, like the bookmobile, you could take like books home. And so I remember being in like elementary and I remember just, you know, just picking up like some books. I was probably like in second or second or like third grade. And I remember getting a book of poetry and I remember it was like what is this you know it was like the language was so different you know than anything that I had ever encountered before because you know it was this artistic way of writing and communicating and so even just in my young mind I was still fascinated by you know uh by poetry, that you could do this with words, that you could do something creative with words in this kind of way. And so I remember just having an affinity very early on. Like I remember, you know, reading like Maya Angelou and, you know, like Robert Frost, 
um, you know, just being exposed uh, to that, you know, during like my early years and just really falling in love with it, but not really knowing that, um, that it would shape who I would become in the world. And so, you know, I started like writing poetry, you know, in my journal, just, you know, filling my notebooks with poetry. I would like go home and, you know, write little like love poems. Um, and, uh, you know, and I, uh, wrote in middle school and in high school, it was never something that I shared. I sort of always thought, you know, it was kind of this private art, um, this kind of private life that I had. And, and then I got to college, I went to Indiana university and I remember I was participating in an event that the black cultural center had, and they brought in a spoken word poet. His name was versus he's from Detroit. And I remember that was the first time that I had ever heard spoken word. So I didn't know that performing poetry was possible. Up until then, I just thought that poetry was relegated for the page. And so I remember after encountering verses and seeing his performance and seeing the way that he brought the words alive through his body, I remember I was like, shocked and dumbfounded, like, wow, this is possible. Um, so that was the first time that I had ever seen spoken words. So I was probably about 18 or 19 at that time. And I still didn't think that it was something that I could do. Um, I just thought, oh, wow, this is really cool. Um, you know, I thought I was more of a writer, uh, but not really a performer. And then a friend of mine had opened up a poetry spot on 10th Street. It was called All That Jazz. This was literally over a decade ago. And she had invited me to come and perform some of my poetry. And I was like, no, I'm not, you know, like, like I'm like a writer and I keep this to myself. So I'm not, you know, I'm not coming. And she just kept like encouraging me. So, so I went and, um, and I did some poetry for the audience and they like affirmed me. And it was like, I never turned back from there. You know, I just kept, uh, you know, kept building, kept growing in it um, um, until it, I mean, until it just really became a part of me. And um, and now I just really can't imagine my life um, without it. And so, you know, I do this um, full time and very, very grateful for all the opportunities I, that I've been given. Indianapolis has been very kind to me in supporting my growth throughout the last decade of being a poet and spoken word artist. You mentioned um, how you were younger, you uh, were exposed to Robert Frost and Maya Angelou. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to ask being, um, a younger person than a child exposed to such like amazing artists. How do you think that's changed your outlook on the world or something that you thought um, beforehand? Then, you know, looking back, how has that changed some of your perspectives? Well, you know, it's really interesting because I, you know, I, I was definitely shaped by the poets that I was reading um, and um, 
the fact that, wow, like this is, um, you know, like that people actually do this for a living. But it was really funny because even though I've always loved writing, I've always loved poetry. Um, I didn't see it as something that I could actually do. Like I didn't see it. It's, you know, it's like I, because it isn't, it is an art form. And I think, you know, often kids are sometimes not encouraged, you know, to go into the art because it's sort of unpredictable. And, you know, there is a, a stigma, you know, there, there's the, the saying that we have around being, you know, a starving artist, that artists can't make money, you know? And so that was just like, I think I kind of, you know, something, you know, I was like, you know, I could really never do this. And so I, so even though it was something that i loved, I thought I had to do something quote unquote normal and practical. So, you know, when I went to IU, I didn't go for creative writing, you know, I, 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 I literally only took one poetry class, um, in my life. And so I went for something else. You know, I was, I was a, I was a public health major. I was really, uh, scattered, you know, I floundered, you know, I had like three different majors. And so, um, um, and so I worked in, you know, law for a couple of years. I've worked in the not-for-profit sector, um, all of these things, right. Um, because I didn't really think that I could live my passion fully. And that was something that I had to grow into and, and, and grow the confidence that when, that we are given dreams and that we are given visions that, you know, what brings you alive, that that is there for a reason, you know, that, that, that is there for like a reason. And, and I kept just, you know, trying to do something else and trying to do something else and it was like poetry kept calling me. It was the vocation that never let me go, that kept calling me and saying, this is where you belong. This is where your, your, your life is. This, is. this is where your passion truly is. And so, so I was very, very fortunate to be shaped you know, by being exposed to poetry in that I knew that it was possible but it took me a while to actually believe that it was possible for me, if that makes sense. And so that's something that I had to grow into and finally um, gain the confidence that I could step out and do this full time. And um, yeah, and I'm so grateful that I, that I did. I have not been disappointed by that decision. Um, earlier the Kendra Collective um, yes ma'am and I just wanted to know like how has your organizational work so um, you know whatever that looks like and you can explain some more changed in light of COVID I know at Kepra all of our stuff is typically face-to-face in our community mm-hmm. forms and everything we so we're just having to adjust and put everything online which has been difficult but of course you know you have to adapt so I'm just wondering what does that look like in your organizational work yeah, it's really interesting. And so with the Kindred Collective, we actually just became incorporated this past January. So we are actually new um, as far as, you know, being an incorporated organization. 
Um, so of course we had a lot of big plans to, you know, continue the in-person workshops and the in-person community dialogues. And we were forced to pivot, of course, due to COVID. But actually, you know, I'm seeing it as a blessing now because I think it's given us some necessary incubation time to really think about who we want to be as an organization. And we have been doing that. So we have really, the past couple of months, we have been working together, brainstorming as a collective, you know, living into this new time as we are, you know, on the horizon of of a world that, you know, none of us expected that we would be in where we are being forced to move things virtually. And so we are asking, you know, what's, what is possible? Can we still do real healing, real community dialogue, you know, real honest listening, real work virtually. And so, you know, we've been testing some things out. We have continued to work. Um, um, uh, My colleagues, especially Ben and Joshua have continued to, you know, do a lot of trainings um, in in racial equity for churches and faith-based institutions. Um, And we are branching out of that. And so we, uh, you know, and uh, we are working on uh, something for a a cohort for people of color that we're hoping to launch in 2021. So it's actually given us, I think, the necessary time and space that we have needed to just really fill out, you know, who we are and who we want to be. And so, um, um, so everything that we've done has been virtually and it's worked fine. And, and so we are just continuing to build on that. Um, of course, you know, I don't think anything can replace that in-person presence, you know, there is something that we get that is valuable about the energy that, you know, individual spirits can bring when we are together in a room. So, um, you know, I don't want to, you know, um, um, say that we don't want to do that if, you know, the space in the future uh, allows us to, but we have, you know, done the next best thing. Um, and that is just, you know, continuing to, you know, hold space virtually, um, you know, as best as we can. You mentioned with Kendra, a lot of it is about listening and speaking and really storytelling with one another. So I was, um, wanted to ask if you could tell me a little bit more about what you've learned about your community or, you know, about your community members that, um, some things that you've kind of learned over the years of doing the work in your organization. Yeah, it's really interesting. So when Ben Tapper and I started this in 2016 and we sat down and, and we thought, you know, oh man, there's so much polarization. There's so much division And, um, you know, we all fall on different uh, sides of the spectrum when it comes to 
political ideologies and how we vote and you know even what we believe and how we believe the problem should be solved what those solutions are and i remember saying to ben we were sitting in a coffee shop and i said you know i said you know as human beings we all have different answers about how we think some of our biggest problems of humanity and some of our biggest social problems should be solved i said but i bet we deep down inside, we have the same big questions. We have the same universal questions. And so we took that, we took that premise and said, can we gather people around big questions? Instead of answers, can we actually flip this process and gather people around questions and then allow people to sit together with questions without needing to solve them, like without feeling this pressure to solve the problem for one another um, or for even oneself, but just to sit with the questions. And so this was really an experiment um, that we were trying with, you know, high hopes that we could, with sitting together with questions, that there would be a vulnerability, but a courage also that could emerge that would allow us to remember the deepest parts of our common humanity and, um, and who we were. And that even if somebody didn't look like us or didn't you know, vote exactly the same way or didn't even believe um, all of the things that we do about how the world's problems should be solved, that we could still have a common respect for one another. And what we found is that um, we actually saw that happening. We saw that happening organically, where people were willing to be vulnerable, but they were willing to be courageous. And that people were willing to sit with discomfort and that in doing that, that there was something um, really beautiful that happened in that process and that they left feeling a greater sense of connection to community and to themselves. And so, um, you know, we had, you know, like we, we try to, you know, ask these beautiful questions and these questions of deep humanity. We try to start out with those and we find that, and, and we have found that, that we were right, that we, even though we all have different answers, different ways of getting, you know, to point A or point B, that deep down, we all struggle with the same universal questions. We all live with the same deep questions and deep longings. And so we found that we were um, able to create a space where community could connect around that in these beautiful and surprising ways. And so there still is hope for us yet. Thank you 
for listening to this episode of Homegrown Solutions, Sustainability in Crisis, a Kepper Institute podcast on community creating in the midst of chaos. You can find this episode at podcast.kepper.org along with others. If you like what you hear and want to support Kepper's work, visit donate.kepper.org. Our storytelling team consists of Leah Humphrey, Asli M.Y. Africa, Chinyelu M.Y. Africa, Chio M.Y. Africa, Ali Tazia, Ajani Johnson, Trey Ramsey, and Keenan Rhodes. Thank you for tuning in. Until next time.